that should get kids to want to go into this profession beyond just having people lift weights. It should go in there because it's connected to the body and you can discover aspects that not just help NBA players become better athletes, but help people avoid hip surgery and help your mom able to play with her grandkids a longer period of time or whatever it may be. Hello, welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined on the line very shortly by Max Schmarzo. Now, normally I would do the whole week in review, what's going on, highlights from the show, but my friend SB21, i.e. Spring Break 21, is right around the corner, loading up Team Robertson tomorrow to get out of here, so I'm going to do the most condensed version ever. And we're just going to jump into this bio for Max so you know a little bit about him before we get into the show. So Max Schmarzo is an applied sports scientist, educator, strength coach, and in general, a human performance enthusiast. Max played Division III basketball at Coe College, where he received his degrees in athletic training and strength and conditioning. From there, he went on and received a master's degree in exercise physiology from Iowa State University. Max has worked as a chief science officer, director of sports science, and as a professional consultant. Last but not least, he's the founder of Strong by Science and co-founder of Edge U. Now, in this show, Max and I take a deep dive into plyometrics and jumping. We start by talking about his humble basketball beginnings and why he's so passionate about jump training. From there, we dive into topics like extensive versus intensive jump training, the variables he looks at when it comes to developing a training program, the two types of jumps or jumpers that you might find, and the role of strength training in performance jumping. Now, there are a few points here and there throughout the show where we might get a little nerdy, but it's all in good fun, and I think you're really going to enjoy the show. But enough for me, let's do this. man. Thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. I guess it's kind of a long story, but I'll give the very, very condensed <laughs> version of it. I love it's it. A, it's always a vague, right? Tell me about yourself. Oh, right. caring. I'm thought. No, um, <laughs> I played college basketball, little D3 hoops, and that was kind of the initiator of all things performance, right? Because you're trying to be a better athlete, right? whether it's training to be a better jump shooter or training your ball handling or training your strength to be a better basketball player. As a kid who wasn't very athletic, I always wanted to be more athletic. <laughs> and so- naturally you gravitate towards things that you think will produce that. And that's where kind of strength and conditioning and fitness and performance and all things kind of wrapped into each other. So that's kind of the catalyst. So everything that comes after that, obviously that's the seed. So I got, you know, master's degree at Iowa state, and then I bounced around a couple places out of Stanford for a little bit with under Chase Phelps for a short stint. And then I was a director of sports science at resilience code. And then I moved out to Iowa to kind of take on my own ventures now kind of independent doing my own thing. Right. And the whole guess summary of that story is that there's a lot of different cool opportunities and you can learn a lot from those, but it doesn't really matter what you did because it's all about what you're doing. And so I could give you a long winded explanation of, Oh, I've done this. And this is why you should listen to me and trust me. Don't do that. Like for me, (laughs) like, I don't care if you like my credentials or not. The point is, am I doing something to provide value? And so that's kind of something that I've always focused on. And so for myself, I try not to be like, oh, how did I get here? But it's where am I going to go now? Yeah, I like that a lot, man. So talk to me, what what really got you into physical preparation? Or talk to me about your early experiences there. Because like you said, you played basketball. I think a lot of people that I gravitate towards played basketball, so that's fun. But like, what was it that got you like, okay, I need to get in the gym. I think this can make me a better athlete. Mm. Yeah, so from a young age, my brother played minors league baseball. And so we were a big baseball family. And I worked with Tom House very early on. Oh, yeah. I don't know who Tom House is, but through a family friend, he happened to be friends with Tom House. And Tom would come out to Portland, Oregon, and we'd work with him about three times a year. And so I didn't know who Tom was. I knew he was a pitching coach. And looking back on it, he was like the guy. <laughs> right. But he always made us work out. Do the ups, he said. Push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups. His test was you could throw harder if you could have the back muscles to hold a pencil between your scaps. That was like his little example of how to demonstrate to kids what back muscles were. So we'd always sit there and try to pinch our scaps and, (laughs) you know, our rhomboids or traps big enough to be able to do it. So that was kind of my first, I was very young, probably in, I don't know, third grade doing that. So I got exposed to it really early, not even knowing what I was doing. And that place happened to be a biomechanics lab at the same time. And so that was the old days where they had the charts on the wall. So they'd videotape you and they'd 
literally each chart was like an, not chart, but it's a graph. So it's like tiled, I should say. And each tile is like a square inch. And so you could actually point and calculate the velocity based on time because it's all one big X, Y axis. So they had this whole biomechanics lab and that was really early on. And I didn't really know, know it was that cool, but I always kind of thought that's how things work for people. And so then growing up, I always had that as a part of my life. So I was always training, but I never got good results is what the issue was. I think it would have been really different if I was just innately a really good athlete and had worked out and gotten great results. I wouldn't have thought much of training itself, but I never really got any good results. And a lot of it was on myself from training. And I was really frustrated. I was a high school basketball player who told I couldn't get division one scholarship because I wasn't athletic enough. And I don't care how much I trained. I probably would never be athletic enough, whatever. (laughs) But the point is like, oh, I worked really hard. This isn't fair. And so growing up, I was around guys like, Devontae Adams, I played basketball with. He was on my team. And Jock Peterson, Jeremy Lin was older than me by four years, but his little brother was on the team. So he played with Jeremy. So he played with guys who were in the pros. Right. And like you look at them and you look at yourself and you're constantly trying to evaluate why can't I do a 360 windmill as a 17 year old like Devontae? Like, right. what is what's lacking? And then we go in the weight room and, you know, he'd squat 400 pounds as like a 16 year old. And you're like, okay, well, I can't do that. <laughs> so maybe something's happening there. And that's where it really all started. And then like long story short, got into college, trained and whatnot, and didn't really see any positive results until after college where I was doing my graduate work. And I uncovered a part of a library that was all dusty and covered with cobwebs. And it was the old sports science area of the Iowa State Department. And it had all these old Russian books and sports science books, European sports science is what it would be called, or, or right. Russian sport. And it's like Pavo Komi was in there and Verkashansky and Satisorsky and everybody was in there. So like the books on no one checked them out. And as a grad student, I could check them all out. I was allowed <laughs> to I checked 25 books out that day. And I read them all. And I read them all because the year before I was at University of Iowa internship and I felt really stupid in the strength and conditioning internship. And I was very embarrassed about not knowing what I thought I knew because I had an athletic training degree and a strength and conditioning degree at the time. And I went to this internship and I thought I knew stuff. And I went there, I was like, I don't know anything. I feel embarrassed, kind of ashamed. And so I dug up these books and it told me all this stuff about training and I tried it and I got better. And I'm like, wow, this stuff actually works. This is pretty cool. Like, And so it's like this weird full circle moment, right? As a third grader, you're in a biomechanics lab. Ironically, you don't even know what you're doing. You don't even know what's around you. And then you kind of ignore science and go through bro science. And then you come back to science because you realize that's what actually works. And, you know, looking back on it, I was probably a better athlete as a third grader and fourth grader, like for my age group, because of what I was doing. And then that tapered off really hard because I stopped doing those kind of scientific-ish workouts. And that's a very right. loose term to describe that. So that's kind of the long-winded story of how I got to interest in strength, conditioning, physical preparation, anything health and wellness, because it all kind of then branches off of those interests. Yeah, that's so, so cool. And it reminds me a lot of my story, just in the sense that, you know, I was at Ball State and this is, date myself whenever I talk about this, but this is when you had to like go to the library and find the actual journals and then photocopy the journals to get the papers. But it was the same thing, right? Like it was in my graduate program. I started reading Zatsky Orsky and Mel Sif and Verkashansky. And you're like, oh, wow, this is not what I learned in the NSCA textbook. You know what I mean? There's a lot more to this. So I love that story. Now, what I want to know is why are you so obsessed with jump training? Because I love it too, but I, I want to know why are you so obsessed with it? I play basketball and I couldn't do yeah. that. I can shoot the daylights of a ball. I could never dunk. And, you know, mm-hmm. you can make, there's a game. I remember very vividly. And this is not anything neither here nor there as in terms of my lack of recruitment, but we were playing a basketball tournament and Devante comes in the gym because he had football practice before or something and throws on shoes. He knew he, knew he was going to be late. So he comes in the game, we start. I had 28 points. I had six threes. Devante had three windmill dunks and <laughs> had 19 coaches talking to him and no one even, even knew who I was. <laughs> right. And so I was like, Oh, clearly one of these things is more important than the other. And right. looking back on it, it makes total sense. Right. Because it's just a sheer athletic expression. Yep. And like they say, you can teach basketball, you can't teach athlete. And so it's always been something like, wow, I wish I could do that. And it's also very space friendly or you don't you don't need to really go anywhere to, to right. jump the sprint you have to have a little bit of space but you know i just need a, a garage with a high enough ceiling i guess to jump yep so naturally it fits in and it's something i've always wanted to do right you grow up and you have as a basketball player these little hoops that you're dunking on and 
you know, you've always wanted to dunk a basketball. And so why not just get overly passionate about something, which also then yields a lot of, on the side benefit for my own profession, a lot of information, right? Because it is such a hyper-controlled variable. It's very easy to track and understand transfer and, you know, those aspects of performance that we're interested in. If I were to try and throw a baseball, right, there's so many moving parts. It's hard to say like, oh, you know, my program worked but didn't work. And also I don't want to go throw a baseball every day as hard as I can, but I can jump as high as I can basically every day and be kind of just fine. Right. So it allows actually for a nice Petri dish of science, essentially. Yeah. So again, parallel to kind of what you were saying, I played basketball growing up. And then my last two years of high school, I got into volleyball. And Ball State had a really good men's volleyball program at the time. And like, you know, like I've only played two years. Like if I keep working at this, like maybe I can go play, you know? And so I go to an open gym and there's a lot of dudes that are like my height, right? Like 5'10", 5'11". Now they're all from like the Dominican and Cuba. And so we get on the court and all of a sudden I'm like, holy shite. These guys are touching like 11'3 and 11'4 at my height. So we're talking like 42 and 43 inch verts. I'm like, okay. Like, I kind of get it now. <laughs> Unless I'm going to start jumping 40 plus inches, I'm probably not going to play at this level. So Exactly. Yeah. And it's cool, right? It's yeah. such a pure, pure movement, right? There's yep. something about when someone jumps really high, there's something about it that everyone can appreciate, right? Yes. There's like, oh, that's a great hand clean. You know, I know okay, the specialist can appreciate that. But my wife's going to be like, okay, cool. He lifted the weight. But everyone <laughs> can appreciate someone running fast. And someone jumping high. Yeah. And you can go, wow, you know, that is something like you, you'll see someone get a rebound in a game. You'll be like, oh, what, right. yeah, what was that? Like, right. <laughs> because it's something so immediate. Yeah. At least a sprint you have to build up. Like I'm watching March Madness right now and someone went and got a rebound or tried blocking someone and almost hit his head in the rim. And you're kind of like, oh, you know, we're <laughs> not built the same. I'm like, right. wow, <laughs> that was a really cool nothing of a play. Like, yeah. It is just enjoyable to see. It's Absolutely. very unique and just a pure expression of something that we can't even really describe very well. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Okay, so, you know, I love following your stuff on Instagram. And we'll talk more about the gram later. But one of the things that you mentioned yesterday, and I was so glad you talked about it, was the difference between extensive and intensive jump training. So if you don't mind, talk to us a little bit about each and maybe when and why you would use each in a program. Extensive jump training is to draw a parallel to something that who someone who's not familiar with jump training would be merely a means to kind of toggle your intensity to get your body ready. An example is no one would just go and squat a one rep max the first time they're working out, right? That's probably, I mean, people do do that, but they're probably not the wisest of things. And they're not going to do it day in and day out you're going to build into it, right? You might do sets of eight, sets of five. You got to get your tissues ready to handle a high output movement. That same thing applies with jump training. In the same way you prepare your tissues to go run a marathon, you wouldn't just run the marathon that day. You also prepare your tissues to jump. So intensive is intense, high intensity, and extensive is longer duration, more reps. And by nature, these two are inversely related, right? You can't do lots of one rep maxes. That doesn't make any sense. You can't do your one rep max many, many times, and neither can you do your max effort jumps many, many, many times. And so when we say extensive, it also means submaximal. Mm-hmm. So intensive, we can think about that as low volume by nature. It's going to have to be low volume and then high output extensive is going to be higher volume, lower output. And what this does, if we think about it from a physics standpoint, it's actually modifying the amount of force we are producing per rep. So if we think about every rep, like we're going to do 10 jumps as high as we can, and we think about this in relative intensity, well, your average intensity is going to be 100%. And let's just pretend in this world that I can jump 10 inches high is the highest vertical jump I have for easy math. My average jump for all 10 of those is going to be 10 inches, assuming it's maximal. Right. But now I might instead toggle down and do intensive, getting ready for those maximal efforts. And I might do 30 reps, but now I'm only doing 70% or 60% of my effort. 
So over that time period, force output is only 60% of that it would be if I was doing maximal efforts. And so not only does it build your capacity to get ready to actually express the force because you're getting used to the rhythm of the movement, the, the actual patterning of the movement, you're not just jumping straight into maximal efforts, it's actually building the tissues. So we can think about your infrastructure and not just in terms of the wiring, how your neuromechanical properties fire and coordination and synchrony, but also in terms of the actual tissues themselves, the tendons, the ligaments, the fascia, the muscle, getting used to these strain demands. So it has a better infrastructure to have a higher working capacity. So when you do intense movements, you actually have a higher foundation to handle a larger quantity without having concern about the infrastructure falling apart. Yeah. I mean, first off, that's an amazing answer. So great stuff there. But it was just so refreshing to hear you talk about that because so many people just talk about, oh, my max effort box jump or whatever. And if you're doing it right, there's a lot of buildup to that, right? It's just like you alluded to. It makes such common sense when it comes to weight training. And a lot of people talk about, oh, you know, you don't go in the gym and work up to a max. Yet we have no issue going in the gym and testing our vertical jump all the time or just blasting people with like lactic conditioning. So it's like all these principles like sub-maximal to maximal or extensive to intensive that apply with weights work with your jump training. They work with your med ball training. They work with your conditioning. So it was just really refreshing to hear you talk about that because I don't hear most people talk about it in the sense of jump training. Yeah, and to piggyback on that too, because I didn't answer the second half of that question of how would you actually implement it. Yeah. You can look at jumping slightly different lens through that of lifting because most lifting movements rarely, and I say that rarely because you can, but rarely do you mess with the loading parameters of it in terms of are you going to do an eccentric portion or not, mm. right? But a jumping movement, you actually have an additional load. So you have the initial load, which is you bending your knees, that initial eccentric loading, and then the concentrics, the jumping. Yep. But then we have a third tertiary loading, which is the land, right? So yeah. this third loading is the landing aspect. And it's actually the landing aspect that I'd argue gives people the hardest time. Yes. And the reason for that is because it's typically a very rapid movement, right? So you, you hit the ground and you have a very high peak forces. And so what we need to think about in terms of what's causing an issue, is it the max intensity jumping? I'd argue probably actually not. It's probably the landing that's giving yeah. people the biggest issue. So you can actually then have extensive movements where you're prepping the landing because that's what we're getting for for high level plyometrics. We think about plyometric, we think about a ground impact causing any rapid stretch in some type of tissue and that being, you know, the reflex loop taking place. So if we want to get someone ready for those plyometrics that we like to traditionally think about, we can segue someone into higher ground contacts at the same time, keeping their concentric output near maximal. And this can be easily done through modification of box height that you jump onto. So if I'm jumping onto a box and I'm just getting used to while well, jumping again, not really handling the impacts, I can do one that when I land, I'm basically at my apex. So there's minimal downward momentum. If you think about momentum as mass times velocity and velocity is well, you crashing into the earth going fast <laughs> and your mass is your body weight, which isn't going to change. If we land at the apex, velocity is near zero because that's where it starts to trans transition a negative velocity towards the earth. So that we can do then if I jump 30 inches, I can put a 28 inch box. I can still do a maximal intense jumping effort and land on that box. And then I can slowly segue that box down. Maybe I get down to 24, 20, 15, 12, 10, just jumping in place. And then even more advanced would be the depth jump, which is adding an element where you may be even higher than you can jump because you're actually emphasizing the impact. And so when we think about jumping, we need to categorize jump training versus plyometric training. Jump training is simply just jumping plyometric is that action where we have that rapid stretch and in conjunction with some sort of velocity-based loading that leads to a lot of these itises and overuse things when inappropriately you know, applied versus just strictly jump training. You can probably get away with more intense methods, assuming you're modulating and toggling that landing aspect by manipulating the velocity portion of momentum in a way that we can then do maximal concentric movements without having to worry so much about the impact demands. Yeah. 
That's awesome. And it actually kind of goes seamlessly into my next question because you kind of discuss moving into more intensive jump training where you're really trying to drive up those vertical jump numbers. What are some of the key variables that you manipulate or play around with? I feel like you already talked about this a little bit, but like what are the key things that you like to play around with and toggle with to get the most out of somebody's vertical jump? Yeah, jumping is a very interesting dynamic because you had different kinds of jumps. And traditionally, people like to think about a standing vertical jump because we think about the combine. But we actually then analyze high jumpers and those high jumpers have far less of a standing vertical jump than those of a combine athlete, even though they jump way higher on a approach jump. And so we actually kind of have the spectrum of different kinds of jumps. We have the static in place jump, which is a non-conversion, conversion of momentum kind of jump. It's you just fighting gravity and going vertical and trying to be a rocket ship and explode on up. Right. And the other kind of jump is the bouncy ball kind of jump, which is where you're converting energy into it. a great way to think about that is think about the combine guy who's big and he's 260, but he jumps 44 inches from a standing vertical. And then also think about like Stefan Holmes, the great high jumper who just sprints, 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 and boom, like, you know, a bouncy ball just converts his energy into vertical jumping. And so when we look at those two kinds of jumps, the initial one, which is the standing counter movement jump is far easier to at least theoretically understand because it probably just has a lot to do with being strong and powerful. Like, as there's not much eccentric momentum, you can modify it really well by just going down slower, but you look at the highest, you know, standing vertical jump guys, and they typically are just very strong relative to their body weight and very powerful at typically a little bit slower velocities. When we get into approach kind of movements, we start to look at the influence of ankle aspects, as well as the neurodynamics of co-contractions. So if we think about conservation of energy, we have to find a way for our body to resist deformation. So if we think about stiffness, so stiffness is your ability to resist deformation to an applied force. There's a stiffness to elasticity ratio that exists between individuals. There's a classic example of Indiana doing a study on high jumpers, and it looked at their ability to approach with high velocities and convert that into vertical momentum, i.e. the jump height. And it actually looked at if you come in too fast, it requires too great a force and you have too much deformation, you'll actually buckle and not mm-hmm. jump very high. Yep. And so we have to look at these, these different kinds of jumps because we're looking at jumps that are conservation of momentum and we're transitioning that into vertical forces. We have to look at not just, oh, are the legs getting strong, but also is the muscle tendon unit within each joint co-contracting so they're actually bracing for impact appropriately and then releasing to let you go up and you know into the air and, and jump high and so what happens is if we can produce optimal stiffness upon contact we hit the ground our muscles co-contract and we have the ability to resist some deformation but not so much that we're just like this rigid you know right. two by four then we can allow the muscle tendon unit to optimize that so in that kind of training when i look at it i want to look at something a very basic assessment initially so how does someone just handle any sort of vertical, quote unquote, downward forces or stiffness. So a simple reactive strength index is a very easy means to look at someone's jumping ability. So if they were to step off of a box and jump after a small little drop jump, you look at things like their ground contact time. Is someone able to actually maintain a quick ground contact time? And then secondary to that, can they then jump high off of that ground contact time? Because in theory, the ability to maintain a ground contact time is associated with changes in joint angles. So that's going to be deformation, i.e. your stiffness. And then the ability to jump high from that ground contact time is going to be relative to your conversion of that kinetic energy in conjunction with your ability to produce concentric force, actually jump. And so what we can look at then, and we can look at it in a very controlled setting, that single leg, you know, it's two foot drop jump kind of situation, but then you could also analyze the actual sporting movement. So if I put someone on a force plate and we want to see if they're getting better at vertical stiffness, or maybe some sort of a single leg broad jump, that's more specific to their sport. You can look at the ground contact time, but then you can also look at the shape of the force time curve and you can start to understand whether or not it's becoming two independent movements or one movement in which it's acting in unison to transition that. And typically in those individuals, most people don't get enough ankle work and they're actually not used to handling these high entry velocities that Indiana study I referenced before actually showed a lot of these high jumpers are coming in at too slow of a velocity relative to what they could actually handle. Because if you think about it, it's a very fine line. You come in too hot, you're not going to actually 
jump. And so you actually rather err on the light side, but sometimes people develop their physical qualities so much further than their skill has actually caught up to that they can handle way higher entry velocities than they're expected to. But then it becomes a skill issue as to whether or not they can put their body in the right position to utilize their you know, physical qualities to actually produce a movement. And so that's where you look at the ankles typically is a weak link in that situation in conjunction with the skill of actually getting quote unquote their ankles, knees, and hips in the right position in the first place. So I didn't really answer your question a whole bunch as to, <laughs> as to how you look, because it's, it's really complicated. Yeah. Because you start to then understand when you look at that conversion of momentum aspect and how that segues into all athletic movement, right? It's not, if I could give you a pinpoint answer, I could then tell you also how to make someone as fast as Usain Bolt, because they're actually very, very much closer together, especially when you're talking about that conversion aspect. Yep. While, while the static counter movement jump is a little bit more of just, you know, how much power and force you can yeah. produce. So again, to give you a training means that's something that's actually applicable outside of a kind of a long-winded rant, and band assisted movements are very beneficial for people who don't understand the lightness feel and yeah. to actually doing them appropriately. I think contrasting that with the actual dynamics of the movement itself, but submaximally in a sense that we're focusing on different aspects of the movement. So often people get caught up in the aspect of how far can I jump? And in my head, I'm thinking about bounding right now. So someone does bounding, they're just that big piston of a person and they're just right. <laughs> every step. And you say, hey, let's go 80%. I want light, rhythmic, and fluid, Yeah. right? And then we start to build what we're working on there is the fancy word of, you know, neuromuscular synchronization, i.e. coordination and rhythm, and the ability to actually time your limbs into space. Because if we're always working at near maximal force outputs in these movements, well, someone's always going to go to the default motor program that is required for maximal force outputs that they've safely done in the past. So you got to look at how do I build a new motor program for them to then apply their physical abilities into, but we can't do that at maximal force outputs because they deem that a safety issue subconsciously. And they're not going to let you just, you know, oh, be light and fluid and jump as far as you can. Right. Like no one's going to do that. That's why someone, when they do things max effort, they default back to quote unquote bad habits. And so you get in a tangled web of how we actually understand self-organization and motor skill learning and whether or not someone's jumping issue stems from physical abilities or is it neuromuscular skill and actual timing aspects that are lacking it as a whole. So it's a tangled web of details that I gave no answers to probably just to make <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the whole point of it, I guess. No, I, I think it helps just give people an idea of number one, there's multiple ways to jump, right? So I probably could have been clear in my answer, but you've got, like you said, you're kind of just standing vertical jump, and then you've got your more coordinative where you're coming in and jumping off one leg type of jump. And then, like you said, it's like picking out exactly what you need for each person would be like asking me or Bill, like, oh, well, why does this person not have shoulder rotation? And we could look at 20 different things. But I like that idea of breaking it down. And I think that helps, too, because something you mentioned that I think makes a lot of sense is we spend so much time in the weight room. That's one of the first things I find I have to tell people to do is, look, this is not max effort jumping. You know, yeah. it's fluid. It's relaxed. 75%. Like, let's just see how it looks and feels when you try and make it smooth versus trying to muscle everything. Exactly. And that's the extensive part, right? And yeah. so now we can couple what we just mentioned earlier into actually programming application. I have someone, an athlete who's super weight room dominant. Yep. Wonderful. That's okay. That's just their background. You can't right. change that now. But they need to have development of impacts. So not only am I not preparing their tissues to handle greater impacts, I'm in theory working on some of their quote unquote biomechanics or just skill aspects to handle high level impacts in a way that will actually transfer to better outcomes. An example would be I had an athlete, super strong athlete. The guy has a powerhouse, especially for body weight too. Very, very powerful. I got the guy like in place doing like light pogos and stuff. And it's pretty rhythmic and okay. And the minute you added some sort of external stimulus, we had like a 12 inch box and you had to hop on and hop off and be light. Oh, it went to heck. Like, <laughs> it was like nine minutes on the ground contact time. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like right. it became two distinct movements. <laughs> but we're actually not even jumping as high as we were before in the pogos. We actually lowered the jump height, but we added an external stimulus. And so it's a great yeah. example is how the minute this becomes uh, toggled between conscious and autonomous action, how we can assess whether or not the new default pattern is this new fluid movement. 
And in that case, this person's default pattern went back to this rigid, clunky movement. And so if they can't do it on a little box, being light and elastic, where we change the external cue to just land on the box and come back off, how do you expect that to transfer when you got to read defenses in basketball when someone cuts back door and you're yeah. processing information analytically in the game in conjunction with trying to then satisfy the needs of, well, making sure that guy doesn't get open back door, the physical aspect. I love it. I love it, man. Okay. So this again, kind of leads seamlessly into my next point because we've talked a lot about jump training, but there is a component of building strength and force development that can help with vertical jump training. So in your opinion, what role do you see strength training playing in helping somebody build a bigger vertical jump? Yeah, it's super confusing question. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough one because you could say, okay, for just like counter movement jump, getting really strong and powerful is probably just a good idea. Like It helps. And then jumping too. Like, yes. Yeah, make sure you're still jumping. But like, you know, something as simple as a max effort day, a dynamic effort day, and just standing vertical jump practice is going to probably get you pretty good at jumping high. But it's tough because strength, I think Anatoly Bondarchuk said it really well in his books. It's about getting strong enough to create to a point where our body weight is no longer dependent on maximal strength but on velocity-based action. So let me give an example. Let's just break the physics nerds out there are going to hate me for this because I'm oversimplifying and it's not <laughs> actually super correct from a physics standpoint, but we're going to add a little physics and muscle physiology together. So if we look at traditional kind of muscle physiology, and we're going to use the parabolic curve of muscle fiber, we can say, for example, that if I weigh 100 pounds, and my max effort squat, which in this pretend world is exactly correlated to more dynamic actions. We're just going to assume that, okay? So it's 200 pounds. My body weight is 50% of my maximal force potential, correct? And so if we say 50% load is influenced, I should say, by maximal strength capacity by 90%, then I know continuing to improve my maximal strength capacity will continue to improve my ability to produce force and high velocity at my body weight. But at a certain point, I might squat 400 pounds. And now my body weight relative to my squat is still 100 pounds. So it's 25%. Now those influencing factors actually change. The influencing outcome of my force production at 25% body weight or 25% relative max force, I should say, so 100% body weight, 100 yeah. pounds, is more predominantly based on max velocity. So in my head, if you guys take your hands, you can do it with me if you're listening, you're watching, we have a force velocity curve, right? Or force velocity line. We can just make it linear in this case. My body weight as I get stronger actually moves down the line relative to my maximal force output, right? So if I can only squat 100 pounds and it's a one rep max to just stand up, well, obviously everything I do is going to be heavily influenced by maximal strength. But then at a certain point where my strength becomes so great, it actually changes the qualities that influence and dictate my muscular actions. A very easy example to understand this is to look at a little kid shooting a basketball. When a little kid first shoots a basketball, that basketball is such a high percentage of one rep max for them that when they shoot it, they have to shoot it with two hands. It's this big max effort movement on a 10 foot rim. But when they hit puberty, they mature and they're in the NBA and max strength has zero impact on your ability to shoot a basketball. So when you're a little kid, max strength might be one of the most biggest determinants of can you even get the ball at 10 feet high right. these little second graders. But at a point, their strength becomes so great, it actually changes the influencing factors around what actually produces locomotion, jumping, running, or in this case, shooting a basketball. And so at a certain point, we need to get strong enough. And the easiest way to do this, and people say, oh, what's strong enough? Well, just track it. Like if I squatted the other day, I got hurt and I decided I'm going to get really strong on my squat. I don't know why I did this. It's stupid. I do it all the time. like an <laughs> idiot. And I squatted 470 and I weighed 210 pounds and my vertical jump height went nowhere. Why? Because I don't probably need to squat much more to help me jump higher. Right. But when reality, I should have been jumping more because the influencing factors on my jump height were no longer that of max force. There's a great graph. I think it's like in page, I don't know the page. I should know the page. It's in super training, but it says the amount of influence max strength, speed strength, and max velocity has at a given load relative to your one rep max. 
And so as we get stronger, our body weight is a load. It changes. Right. So the influencing factors change and it's no longer maximal strength because in this weird world of strength and condition, we actually need to look at data a little bit and understand that we are adding new data points. So the actual distance between your body weight and your one rep max can't like topography or what the correct word is that the distance can actually change. Yep. So like you can be 200 pounds, but now you get 400 pounds. And we need to appreciate that by creating 400 pounds, we have created a separation in data, the distance between your body weight and what your max force is assuming that is your squat. And then therefore we know muscle physiology and we know that it gets parabolic at the bottom and it's linear for the most part, but then when it gets to really light loads, it actually becomes slightly parabolic. So in theory, you could argue in that range of around 25%, whatever that theoretical aspect would be, that's where the influencing of factors of strength begin to fall off. And that's an argument for it, I guess. And you could dive into some of the research and kind of connect some dots and make an extrapolated theoretical assumption. But I think anecdotally, a lot of us recognize that there is a certain point in time where strength no longer does correlate to being able to jump super duper high, especially in non-standing counter movement jumps because the influencing factors of time, of loading, and other properties that affect it become much greater. Like explosive reactive strength would be something much more important than that, just maximal strength. Right. But it does have a foundational quality because you cannot produce explosive reactive strength because explosive means decent amount of power and power being derived from near max forces. And so there is this interconnectivity of them all at the same time, when you begin to develop certain qualities like nodes in a network, they begin to space out. Imagine like the universe spacing out over time and it begins to expand and the connections between planets becomes further and further. So does that of your qualities of strength, you're creating more area or more distance between connections, essentially. Yeah, you know, it's such a great point And something that I think a lot of people miss when you first start working out, it's like you can see, like you alluded to kind of this almost linear correlation of, oh, I'm getting stronger. Oh, my vertical jumps going up. Oh, I'm getting stronger. My vertical jumps going up. But as somebody that power lifted for a while, there was definitely a tipping point where it's like, oh, my vertical jumps not going up anymore. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? Like the contraction speed slows down, body mass goes up, a lot of things that aren't necessarily conducive to a great vertical jump. And one thing that you mentioned up top, and I think a lot of people miss this because when you first start getting in the weight room and you get serious about lifting, you see this linear relationship, but another thing happens too, you stop jumping, right? Mm -hmm. Like you'll go out and test your vert and like try and dunk or you'll try and grab the rim or whatever. And you're like, oh wow, that's going up. But then you do it long enough and you actually lose the coordinative skill of jumping, like you alluded exactly. to. So that's something you've always got to tap into if you want to keep those numbers up. Not to go off topic, I apologize, but You're I fine. was looking at NFL data recently. I think it was 2019. And you look at the large data set, the entire data set, and you said, oh, well, what's most correlated to 40-yard dash? I think every strength coach, like probably the broad jump. Yep. And lo and behold, the broad jump was. But that was only from a sample size that included the entire population. But we take a subset of that population that's running specific, i.e. the running backs, that held no correlation at all. Mm. So broad jump distance had no correlation. But when you looked at QBs, it had a massive correlation. Why? Because there's motor programming influence, skill influences. Running backs probably been taught how to run. Right. And so specific qualities are going to specifically influence it. But when you have a QB who probably hasn't spent their life practicing running very much, <laughs> at least with form and whatnot, they probably taught to go down more than the run, right. especially in practice. Well, okay, great. They probably have general qualities influencing specific outcomes because there is no specific layer. And so when we start to analyze and understand data, we have to understand not just correlations, but subset population correlations to understand the granularity of it, right? I could take max force and I could say, oh, what's the best predictor of sprint time? And I measure a whole school of kids, right? Mm -hmm. Well, of course it's going to be max force, but I don't really care about that because that's kind of obvious in my opinion. What differentiates the upper 1%? Because that's when you actually start to look at specific influencing factors versus our data set being kind of muddied by just the general influence of general factors due to the large range of data being collected in the first place. Because when you look at running backs, they weren't running five threes. They're all running like four, seven, four, right. eight to four, four. 
But you look at QBs, the data set's naturally larger, probably a five, three to a four, five even. And so then you have these influence. Well, look at the data set says broad jumps associated with it. Well, like you said, you need specific influencing factors. So if I just yep. take a group of individuals and have them, who are the strongest people jump the highest? Yeah, because there isn't a specific motor quality even being tested. By nature, you are testing a quality that has been so untrained that by nature, it's kind of this infant of a special quality that exists by itself. So what else is it going to be influenced by other than general qualities, right? Yeah. It has no skill to influence it. And that's an issue when it comes to research and interpretation and extrapolation of information is the lack of understanding of data interpretation. Like how do you actually look at it, analyze and assess that subset? And then what underlying explanatory variables are actually existing within that subset beyond just that of the quality being assessed? Because lack of correlation amongst the running backs tells you more information than that of an actual correlation because it then is like well what's the theoretical reasoning as to why and simply looking at the data set of nfl combine you can then understand and look at it and say look we can make theoretical pretty valid educated justifications as to how motor skill influences our own specific outcomes by actually just analyzing two subset populations of one specific and non-specific. And so I get all riled up about it because <laughs> this stuff's just free on the internet. And I think as a strength conditioning or sports performance, we love textbooks and textbooks are great. And we love research and research are great. We don't like critical thinking because critical thinking involves not dealing with very high levels of unknowns and confronting things that might, you know, reflect that our training methods aren't perfect because mine aren't. Mine are wrong 90% of the time. I don't have a perfect program. If I did, I train the best guys and I live on an island. And I wouldn't be on social media, like right. whatever. <laughs> like I myself would be an athlete. If I had the best program, right. I'd be in the NBA. Forget everyone else. Like <laughs> I'd selfishly take it for myself. You know that's what I mean? Right. And so, and that's where this lot of passion stems from. And I get wound up about because you look at European and European, especially in the Russian sports science world, Oh, this is what we can read from it, was highly theoretical. They analyzed that critical thinking and theory as opposed to just take it and run with it. Do this exercise because it's going to help your ankle or something. And you're like, oh, right. what else does that mean? Like, right. there's more to it. And that's exciting. That should be exciting. It should be passionate. It should be fun. And that should get kids to want to go into this profession beyond just having people lift weights. It should go in there because it's connected to the body and you can discover aspects and not just help NBA players become better athletes, but help people avoid hip surgery and help your mom able to play with her grandkids a longer period of time or whatever it may be. Yeah, I love it, man. Okay, here's one I'm really interested in. What are the biggest mistakes you see people make when it comes to their jump training as a whole? There's a couple. Overly committing to one end of the spectrum. Okay. It's typically in the strength side. I mean, you, it's hard to go wrong just jumping. That's <laughs> typically a good way out but it's almost chasing shiny objects. So it's like, oh, we need to do this band movement or we need to do this movement or that movement. And because you have such a carousel of stimuli, you never actually overload the body. And so the easiest way for people to get more out of their own jump training is to track their jump training. And if you're improving, then you're doing things correctly. It's that simple. I recently failed miserably to do that. And as of the past week and a half, I've been trying to get back on it because I typically assess my jump training through actually going to the gym and jumping. I didn't like numbers a whole bunch at the time. A lot of it was a mental thing. And also because I kind of just wanted to see if I could jump higher. And so I would try hitting my head on the backboard and I could, I eventually got to that point. And that was an assessment mean. Now it's not like quantifiable, <laughs> but that was a means to assess progress, right? Right. Now I'm trying to be a little more measured and actually analyzing the jump height itself, as opposed to just, can I hit my head on things? <laughs> um, because it became tiring to try and rev yourself up every day to try to do a max approach jump. That's not the smartest idea in the world. Right. A lot of demand. But if you're improving, you're improving. It's that simple. I think Bonderchuk had a question, you know, if why would squatting help jumping if jumping doesn't help squatting? And I thought that was a very, you know, simple yet interesting question, right? If we squat to jump higher, that's great. But 
why is it if we practice jumping a lot, we don't squat more? And you could actually make some arguments here and there as to why that's the case. But I think it's an interesting concept just to be like, look, you should track your jumping and make sure you're actually jumping higher. Right. Just like anything else, if you're trained to put on muscle and hypertrophy, don't be afraid to measure your bicep size. Seriously, if that's right. what your goal is, do it. Right. Absolutely. If, if you're trying to lose weight, weigh yourself. Take pictures in the mirror. I don't care. Unfortunately, we kind of like shame the ladder of those. Oh, track your jump height. You're measuring your bicep size. Heck yeah. I mean, why not? Right. That's your thing. Do it. And that comes down to just having a goal and focusing on progress as opposed to getting caught up in doing things for attention and social media or what others someone else might think. Because at the end of the day, it's about your progress and your goals. And so if that's jumping high, just track it. Like that's the biggest mistake I see. People don't track it. Oh, I'm jumping higher. Okay, how much higher? Why? Why are you jumping higher? Do you know? Like, I and I fail miserably at this over and over again. It's my biggest mistake. That's so probably others as well. No, oh, well, that's fantastic. And it's funny. I have recorded a show with Joel Jameson, not for my show, but for his podcast yesterday. And he's very into the tech space right now. And this is something that we keep coming back to. Like the great thing about all this tech, and you don't even need tech, right, to track your vertical jump. But if you want to, you can. But it's the objectivity. Like it's being real with yourself. Like is the program that you're following producing results? If yes, great, continue to do that. And if not, why not? What do you need to change? And you need to kind of go back to the drawing board and figure out what needs to change for you to see the results that you want. That is so important. And I hate it too, personally, a little <laughs> bit because the tech side has become synonymous with sports science, which is a stupid term. I hate the term sports science. I don't like it at all. I worked as a director of sports science and I could say <laughs> that, I guess, because it doesn't make any sense. If you're a data analysis person or data analytics background, then you should be called a data scientist. If you're a sports scientist, well, how is that different than a strength coach, right? Because all of my job is supposed to know how the body works, just like any strength coach. And I think by siloing that you have made it okay to not understand certain aspects like the tech, someone else is going to handle the tech. Like the number of times people have asked me about heart rate variability and been like, yo, yeah, my heart rate variability is down today, but I feel fine. And I'm like, well, you don't know anything about heart rate variability then, because that's not how that works. <laughs> it's, a, it's a delayed autonomic nervous system effect that is influenced by many different confounding variables. And a matter of fact, having a lower HRV prior to competition is actually a good thing at time due to higher levels of sympathetic arousal. And so the issue is, and I love tech because I'm a nerd, right. um, but the tech likes to make things consumer friendly. And so they don't have time to teach you about autonomic lag or rim rebound or deep sleep should be 18% or number of disturbances at night and what aspects, whether it's your pillow, you know, possible sleep apnea or things like that that are influencing it. No, they just want to say green, yellow, red. I get it. That's totally, it's better than nothing. Absolutely. I applaud them and I love it. But as a coach, as a sports scientist, whatever you want to call that, or someone just working to help someone improve, we should take it upon ourselves to actually understand what the tech is measuring. And that's where we fall short. We often say, oh, let's just use the tech from the consumer side. And that's great if you're just, you know, baking brownies and I just want to follow the recipe. But I'm a chef. I actually want to understand what baking soda does. I put baking soda in my brownies. I don't know what baking soda even is. I have <laughs> not the slightest clue. It tastes right. weird. It kind of tastes gross if you put too much in. And something that's powder or soda that helps something rise maybe. I don't know, and I don't understand it. But if you're a chef, you better understand it, right? right. So I'm a consumer. I'm okay with green, yellow, red on certain things. I'm okay with, you know, cook it for 15 minutes. I'm okay with my coffee being boiled. Apparently it's supposed to be at 215 to 195 degrees before you pour it to get optimal bean roast or whatever. <laughs> I don't even know that. Okay. And I don't really care a whole bunch. Kind of right. care because I'm a nerd, but whatever. The point is that we should try and understand the things that we utilize. And so yeah. don't just track your jump height. That's great. But understand why, why is my jump height going higher? Why is it not going as high? Oh, I'm bending further. I have a deeper count movement jump. So you're not actually jumping higher because you're producing more force in a controlled range of motion you're just getting better at manipulating impulse and so like you might think your training's working but it's not actually working like you think it's working and that's why it's not translating and so i hate to go on that rant and apologize you said max it's gonna be like a 30 minute podcast and i'm sitting here just going <laughs> off the walls i've had too much coffee my french press it. is you know doing me good this morning <laughs> but that's the idea and so i get really passionate about it because 
I've seen it from different areas. I've talked to tech. I don't know how many tech companies and they, they do a great job, but they have to do what they're making it for. Right? Yeah. You can't make this piece of technology for the masses and have the burden of understanding be like, by the way, you should probably learn a little bit about sleep rhythms and stuff. And you're like, right. who's going to do that? That's like if I had to buy a car and understand how to fix the transmission. I pay someone for that, man. Like, right. I'm not interested in that. I'm not a car guy. I'm not going to get baking soda and just have it handed to me and be like, learn what it does. Right. I don't know. Just tell me how much I need. Right. Yes. And I don't know. Like you said, there's levels to all of this, right? And it's okay to be superficial if that's where you want to be. But if you really want to know this stuff and, and you're passionate about it, you got to keep digging deeper, right? And that's the thing too. You can be, just take as what it is and that's okay. But appreciate, you know, what it is as it is. And yes. that's the biggest thing. It's not to take it and then apply it beyond what it is. So if you have a device or whatever the heck you might have, just don't fabricate or justify your understanding at a deeper level that doesn't exist. Simply take it for what it is. There's a lot of things I, I take for what it is. I have lots of devices that I don't understand fully how they 100% work. BFR is one of those blood flow restriction training. I've used it in the yeah. past. I have a decent understanding of it. Can I tell you the detailed physiology of it? Probably not. I really don't use it enough to feel like I need to do that. But there's been certain situations where we had to use it with individuals and the PT gave me the, the script of what they were going to do. And so I said, okay, we're going to do that, I guess. Right. Um, because that wasn't my forte and nor was it my area of interest. I'm not going to sit there and make up and be like, ah, yes, but the PT gave me this, but I know it. So I should do this instead. Like, oh, well, I'll appreciate my knowledge of what is and what isn't there. Right. Absolutely, man. Okay. Big question time, my guy. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Max Schmarzo one piece of advice, what would it be? A betting almanac. Why not, right? Should I no, be, uh, yes. Back to the Future? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, back to the Future. Uh, what a great reference right there. I, I better be the first one who said that. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't think anybody else has said that. That's for sure. <laughs> I could tell myself what stocks to buy, so I wouldn't have to do this job. No kidding. That's right. <laughs> I could just do this job as pure passion. <laughs> no, uh, it, it would be... So here's the kind of the quote I like to use. It's don't believe what anyone says, but prove them wrong. Mm. So what happens if you try and prove them wrong, you might actually understand that they're correct. Right. But you have an understanding as to why they're correct. Mm. If you just listen to my words, but Max said that, well, I say it based on the context of my life, my understanding and my experiences. And so you should try and prove me wrong because first off, if you prove me wrong. Very cool. I get to learn something. But secondly, if you find out I'm right, you actually took the path then to understand why that's correct. So then you have the knowledge to build off of it. Often people like to collect branches instead of planting seeds, right? If the best way to grow a tree isn't to just glue a bunch of branches together, get a seed and water it. It might take more time, but at the end of the day, it's going to be more stable. Mm, I love it, man. I love it. Okay, last but not least, we've got our lightning round. So five fairly short questions. Your answers can be as long or short as you like. No, right. you probably want to say as short as you can. As short as you can keep it. No, seriously, you're good. Number one, what's your career highlight so far as a coach? That's a tough question. I don't think there is a highlight. I think there is a career understanding. Maybe that's a better word. A, okay. a career mind shift. And that is working. I have a situation now where I get to work with athletes very heavily one-on-one. -on -one. one of my athletes, Dakota, plays baseball and I watched his games and I felt like he was my brother. I'd circle it. I'd be nervous for him. And I really felt that in training too, where someone comes and trains with me. They typically fly out here. We work as a team. Like I right. tell them it's no BS. We're not going to come out for a week and leave for a week. We're going to come here. We're going to work together and we're on your team to help you try and be the best you can be. And in those situations, I find myself preparing much more. I find myself not caring more because maybe that's the wrong word. Like I didn't care in the past, but having more emotional connection to mm -hmm. the outcome and holding myself a lot more accountable as to the results. And in doing that, I have to force myself to make a framework to make sure I don't screw up because I do take it very seriously and emotionally hard on myself. If something doesn't go the right way, whether it was on me or not, I want to celebrate with their successes, but I also unfortunately ride their failures as well. And emotionally, it's not the most enjoyable thing for the negatives. And so at times, you know, that's great. Positives are very cool. It's a mindset of understanding that this person, especially in the level that they're in, is really trying to do something special. Yeah. And they let me be a small part of that. And together, we can be a team and move forward and hopefully have you reach those goals. So it's not really a highlight per se, 
but it's something that from that I can extract that bit of information and I can share it with others through social media and whatnot. But at the end of the day, the one-on-one stuff is something very special because the sheer effort, the unit of effort per time is very high. Like, uh, and, and as much as I like training seven, eight people a day in the past, I've done that. It's tiring. It, is. it really is. And it's hard because you're bouncing between eight different goals. Yeah. If I have one person who I train three times a day, well, that's the one goal. I train with them. I do every workout with them. Mm. I am a part of it. I tell them that when you come, the one rule is I work out with you. That's mm. the one rule. And on the rule kind of two ways, I get to pick the music. Um, <laughs> but that's a small rule. So I can be pretty comfortable with diversifying my music portfolio. Right. I work out with them. And I want to be there. I want to feel the workout. I want to be accountable to the workout in the same way it would be for myself. And I want to be in each rep with them. And I don't just mean that as like, a, oh, it's fun for me to work out, but I need to be in it to feel what they're going through. If someone's going to fly out to the middle of Iowa and work with me for three months, and I'm not going to put any short change on them. All right. So we come out, I test the same things you test. Sometimes the baseball pitcher, I, I did not throw the med ball because right. I was getting annihilated by him and it made me mad and it wasn't <laughs> worth it. But we do the same things and I work out with you. It's not me in the sense of oh, I'm going to be superior and you know make this program. You just do it. No, I need to hold myself to that. And so it's really made me look at it through different lens because when I build the program and you're doing it, there's a little bit different to it. There's a little bit of flavor when you're actually doing the three reps versus the five reps. Because next time you program eight reps, you're not going to program eight reps ever again. Right, right. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. Okay, number two. How come no blue check on the IG yet, man? Like 196K followers. On. What does it take? I don't know. A better looking person, I guess. <laughs> come on, man. They won't blue check mark someone that looks like this. Oh, whatever, man. Dude, that's... <laughs> dude. Yeah, I'm sure you get about 50 emails a day, though, from people asking or offering to blue check you for a fee. The amount of BS I've gotten. I'm a big fan now of the fake copyright Instagram messages. You get those? I like to see the evolution of Instagram scams. Mm. That's one of the things I've really enjoyed as being an Instagrammer. Yeah. Is from day one is you, you get to enjoy all the scams that come through. Oh, yeah. We're now on the pitch of copyright scams. Mm. Blue check mark scams were a big thing for a while. Yep. Another one was like fake security alerts. Oh no, security has been broken in. It's like butchered English. And what the heck is this? (laughs) And it's like, please send social security number to prove it's you. I'm like, oh, (laughs) yeah, okay. (laughs) Right away. Yes, let me get right on that. (laughs) Okay. Do you you need my bank account as well while you're at it? Like, crazy. I don't know. They, I don't know. Hey, Instagram, if you're listening, because you probably are. And you listen to everything. You're probably listening right now on my phone. That's right. Blue check mark me. Come Give on, me man. Give me two blue check marks. Ooh, that'd be I'll cool. Be the, first. the first guy. I like it. Okay, number three. And this may be like your coaching question, but do you have a favorite training program that you've created to date? Oh, yeah. Um, always an athlete team. Yeah. By far, my most favorite. I program it every week. I'm on there. I actually, I didn't think I would enjoy it this much. I didn't think having a training team would allow me to actually connect with people as easily as it has been. And I didn't think it'd be manageable first off. I was like, I got to train how many people? Like that doesn't seem right. doable, but it's actually really cool because the group of individuals that are on that are all, I've had people on there done a hundred sessions, 120 oh sessions, Wow. which means a lot to me because you know, some people don't even comment much and said, Hey, Mac, just finished my hundredth session. I've never been with a program this long. And I'm like that. You share that earlier, man. Cause that means a ton. Right. Cause I get notifications on there. Like it's text. And so I'm on the message board answering questions. I can share things. People share things. And I think it's really cool. And it holds me accountable because then as opposed to making 95 different programs, I get to make this one program that I put my heart and soul into. I modify it because of that. There's like typos every week and everyone's like, Max, if it says five reps, is it six reps? Like, just do the reps on there because I'm, I'm always editing right. the stinking thing because I right. get nervous. Yeah, I really do. When someone messages me like, hey, man, I've been 100 session, I go, oh my gosh, they probably have seen so many typos. Right. Like, and, they're still, and they're still here. Yeah, that's um, awesome. And it means a lot to me because I have people messaging me about the success they've had. And that was the whole point. Like, I want people to feel like they're making progress and getting better. And 
it's not very exciting, you know, to have one program and do it redundancies, like repetitively. But like, thankfully, the, the team allows me to, I make a new program, not a new program, a, a structured program. We go through cycles, but weekly updates. It's, it's very fun. I, I actually really enjoy it to a point that I didn't think I would enjoy it this much, far more than I ever expected, which is very cool. Because yeah. I'm connected with people. They tag me in their posts. I get to see them. That's exciting for me. That's, yeah, that's awesome. Point. It's one thing to sell a program. Like someone buys it and you're like, I hope you like it. Right. But it's off. Goodbye. Right. Goodbye the program. And right. you hope they do well in college. You never hear from them again. Right. But no, I'll someone message me and be like, yo, that loading was way too much. And I'll be like, oh, it was. I'm so sorry. Like, <laughs> My, <laughs> bad. Yeah. My bad. My bad. That's great because I learn and they learn. It's a team. And that's the fun thing about it is it really is a kind of a fun team. Yeah, that's awesome. But go check it out, by the way. Cheap plug, 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 oh, plug. I love it. Always an athlete is the team. It's on Train Heroic. I've learned one thing in on podcasts, always plug. Yeah, absolutely, um, so man. We'll make sure happen. we get it in. We'll get it in the show notes for sure. Yeah, sweet. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. Okay, number four, what's your lifetime best vertical jump? I don't know. Hitting your I, head I, on the backboard? Yeah, hitting my head on the backboard is the highest one I've jumped. I've never done a vertex. So okay. fun fact, I have my old college numbers. Okay. So in my standing vertical jump on a vertex, I'm sure you've used a vertex. Oh, before. yeah. So this is going to be very embarrassing when... You have Vertec users out there was 26 inches. Okay. Which on a Vertec is very concerning because yes. a Vertec is typically like plus four with the reach. Right. You can kind of do all these little hands. Finagle it. Yeah. Uh, it was 26. That was very bad. And so I don't know what it is now, but I can windmill a basketball pretty confidently on a hoop, um, okay. which is cool. Yeah. I can hit my head on the backboard. I'm having a good day. If it's a non inflated number, it's probably around. Not as exciting as people think, because realistically, we don't jump as high as people think we jump. Right. Like, people don't jump 40 inches. That doesn't happen. If you did the right. math, guys, if you stand on your toes and add 40 inches to the guy's head when they're on their toes, what, their chin's in the rim? Like, very few people can right. do that. Right. Uh, so, realistically, non-inflated force plate number, my guess would be 36. Okay. 36. I was going to say, that, I was going to say, approach. it's got to be, for a windmill, you've got to be high 30s. Yeah, I think 36 would be a fair assessment of a true-ish vertical. Because I can approach jump on a good day yep. pretty darn close. Not in a court, just kind of in turf, one, two step, 36 inches on a box, straight leg. Okay. And on the court, I can come in higher, faster with traction. I right. can probably get three inches off of timing and sheer excitement. Yeah. So my guess is then that probably puts you right at 36. Because if people don't realize, if you got a size 12 shoe and you go up on your toes, that's a free three inches. And that ain't your vertical, guys. So yeah. we look at guys who are in the NBA who put their head on the rim. When they're on their toes, they already get three inches, right. four inches, and they're already six four, six eight. So yeah. they're what they're on their toes. They're six ten, seven feet, and so then by the time they jump, what well, you gotta jump? If you jump thirty six inches, right on your toes, if you're, it is basically like a, a hair below the rim. And you don't see many guys in the NBA putting their head on the rim. Yeah, that's true. You really don't. That's true. And so to jump high, people don't jump as high as we think. There are some freaks out there that actually do. Yeah. But on the majority, we don't actually jump as high as people think we jump. I've never seen someone cross a standing vertical jump of 30 plus on a force plate. I've never seen it. Interesting. 30 plus inches. And we've tested lots of combine guys. I've seen stuff close to it. Yeah. But that's that's a really high. Like yeah, that's that's some. If you really right think there. about it, guys, that's three feet if you get 36 inches on a standing vertical is insanity. Like that's yeah. three feet. And if you pull your toes up, that's like 39 inches. So you're really yeah. off the ground. Right? So when you look at it from eye height, someone's feet are like at your waistline if I'm six foot. Yeah, that's crazy. Okay, last but not least, what's next for Max Schmarzo? What are you uh, working YouTube, on, excited about? Yeah, yeah the YouTube page. I'm yeah. doing a YouTube thing. Nice. That's fun. That's one thing I put a lot of time into recently. I've never really done that a whole bunch. That's exciting. Another one is I have a website called The Edu. That's my educational website. And so... We'll put them in the show notes if I can. Yeah, of course. And that's what I, I work every day on. So we release new educational videos in 10 to 15 minute chunks, basically five days a week. Um, oh, wow. Sometimes they're in specific themes. Sometimes it's an article. Sometimes it's a series. Sometimes it's a course. Sometimes it's whatever. But think of it like a very, very informative blog post-ish thing. But we put them in video format because we know a lot of people drive and listen to them. and or right, right. So we don't just want to put them in written form. And I'll do a screen sharing and we'll break down things all the way from self-organization to applying physics to movement demands to plyometrics to 
loading parameters, for example, training methods, and everything under the sun. And part of it is because I work a mile a minute in my brain, and Paul Fabrics is my co-dude with it, co-founder, I guess would be the right word for yeah. it. Co-dude. Co-dude, I, I like it. That's kind of a Cobro. Cobro, yeah. <laughs> and so we work a mile a minute and I love to share things and Instagram just let me post 9,000 things in a day. And I really want to give a higher level insight into things beyond which that post can share. So 10 to 15 minutes is something digestible, I think. It's not going to be so tedious. No one can keep up with 40 minutes a day. That'd be really hard to even just listen to, especially if we're doing it like five times a week. So we try and give you basically in the week an hour of digestion to go through consumption of food, of food, of, of intellectual food yes. to, uh, to go through. So yeah, that's something I'm really passionate about. Very excited about that. The YouTube page, the always an athlete team. And then we got my basketball player coming here late May. And so we'll be doing that and that'll be really fun as well. And so very excited for all of it. That's awesome, man. Well, Max, it's been amazing catching up with you today. Awesome. Oh, I what? forgot. What? I forgot. Oh my goodness. Other thing, Max, my yeah. goodness, if we're going to plug, we're going to plug Plug. Upper Echelon Nutrition. I'm a co-founder of the nutrition company, Upper Echelon. Okay. Um, so we have protein, collagen, creatine. We have some other things coming out that I'm pretty excited about. But that's been passionate for me because I was a big supplement user and connoisseur as I grew up yeah. and found a lot of things I didn't like yes. and things I did like too. We try and make it as minimal ingredient as possible. So our protein is whey protein. I'm talking about the chocolate one. We're going to say whey protein. It's going to be cocoa powder. It's going to be stevia. It's going to be Himalayan rock salt. And then technically natural flavors, which is, I believe, just the cocoa powder and stevia right. together. So that's the ingredient list. That's it. Love it. Love it. <laughs> um, and so I'm very passionate about that portion as well, because I think it tastes awesome. I'm biased and anecdotal, obviously, but I sure. drink it before I work out and I don't poop my pants. I know people <laughs> out there have had protein before you work out and you're like, oh my God, I need to go to that. Not good. Now. Yeah, no, I, I love it. The collagen's great. And so we're, I'm very excited about that. That's something I'm very passionate about. And I'm so busy thinking about strength conditioning. I forgot yeah. that I'm in, you know, doing the whole other nutrition side, yeah. supplement side as well. So I love it. Well, again, we'll get all that in the show notes. So people will find all of the things because you have a tongue going on. But I think we kind of covered where can my listeners find more about you? We got the YouTubes. We got the EdU. We got the Upper Echelon Nutrition. Anything else? I think that's it. I have two Instagram pages, Always an Athlete and Strong by Science. The Always an Athlete I originally made because I wanted to share just random things of athleticism that, yep. you know, Strong by Science people like the educational stuff. And so I right. try and keep it there. And I was like, well, I want another page where I could showcase random things that, you know, if I wanted to just post pictures of a dog, you know, I can yeah. do that there. Um, <laughs> whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, something a little more informal. I have that page as well. So you can find me there. Like I said, the YouTube page, EduU. That's www.theedu, edge, like an E. Yeah. Um, and then, so I think that's everything. I don't know. If you, if I love it. If we find something else, we'll put it in there. Well, you know what? If you can't find me, it means you're not, you don't want to find me and that's okay. Right. Uh, you don't need to listen <laughs> to me. I'm pretty annoying at times. You can ask my wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think all of our wives would say that at some point, right? Uh, yeah fair enough all right well max dude thanks again for coming on the show man this was really great thank you mike i appreciate it, man you're doing a great job with this whole deal very professionally done love it thank well you well done all right my friend that does it for this week's show with max really hope you enjoyed it i loved talking shop with him i love talking about jump training i love talking about plyometrics and obviously if you listen to the whole show, this guy is super passionate about this topic. And, you know, it was one of those shows where I'm simultaneously trying to take notes and also trying to come up with follow-up questions because there was so much great information in there. And we got on a few tangents. We might have gotten a little nerdy, but like I said up top, it's all in good fun. And I really hope you enjoyed the show and you learned a thing or two from it. So my friend, very simple ask of you this week. If you're not already a subscriber to the show, please take two seconds out of your day and do that right now. Wherever you consume podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, the Amazon store, anywhere where you can consume podcasts, you can subscribe to the show. So you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So if you would take two to three seconds out of your day, do that right now. I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So my friend, that does it for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care. <laughs>